This week's episode of The Weeds is brought to you by Club W. Really cool service. You know, get wine on the internet. Right now, Club W is offering listeners 50% off your first order when you go to clubw.com slash weeds. This week's episode of The Weeds is also brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds for a free offer. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's a fucking disaster. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with my colleagues Sarah Cliff and Ezra Klein in these shiny new Panoply DC offices. Yeah, very fancy. Recording very studio, fancy. The, the comfort level in this room, just temperature-wise, is like off the charts improvements. So I think the podcast <laughs> itself is going to get that much better to go with the better equipment. Excellent. We're hoping. Happy to hear it. Oh, by the way. Yeah, my other podcast this week—the podcast where I cheat on you guys and interview people—is it also going to get better? It is presumably going to be also not that hot in there. But I have Tony Podesta, who is a Washington D.C. super lobbyist, and we talk about how lobbying actually works, what it is. Uh, I think Weeds fans who care about lobbying and, and feel upset about it will be interested in the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. It's a subject shrouded in mystery. I know. I look forward to listening to your other podcast that yeah. you might Every, love more than The Weeds. As Dylan Matthews would say, all will become clear when you listen to Tony <laughs> Pesta explain lobbying. That, so you can search The Ezra Klein Show and you'll find it. Man, it's the egomania. But now to The Weeds Show. Yeah, now to The Weeds the Show. The Weeds, the, the real show. Uh, we're loosely thinking here about Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia's death and the battle over... Can we stop on that for yeah. a minute? Like, holy shit. <laughs> a really big thing happened in American politics. Yeah, Big things almost never happen in American politics. Uh, sometimes they do. It's usually a Supreme Court justice dies unexpectedly. Though. <laughs> um, one of the, the first things we wanted to talk about, separate from the, the specifics of this fight, is that you know an aspect of the American judicial system is that the judges, all federal judges, but Supreme Court justices most notably, they have lifetime tenure on the bench. And they often try to time their retirements strategically so that they can be replaced by an ideologically sympathetic president. But, you know, like many people, Supreme Court justices don't always know exactly when they're going to die. And so uh, consequently, these these deaths become mega news events. I mean, anytime any public official died, it would be a big story. If the Treasury Secretary or Attorney General died of a heart attack unexpectedly, that would be like news. And the president would want to replace them. But it's a fixed term of office that it doesn't really matter how long that person comes in. Uh, Whereas a a replacement... To just stop you on that for one second, I do think one other thing that's notable there is that Supreme Court justices, that institution, they themselves are independent. If if Obama nominates a treasury secretary, that person more or less does Obama's will. And if he or she doesn't, they get fired. So there's also a different level of import to the nomination. It's true, but even someone like Janet Yellen, right, who has sort of independent authority and and a fixed term, right? So her term will outlast Barack Obama's term in office, but it's still, it's fixed. If if she were to die, I mean, that would be a huge news story, and replacing her would be a big deal, but that person's term would still just end at the appointed end of of the Yellen term, whereas Scalia's replacement, depending on who it is, uh, Scalia was on the bench for 29-plus years. Justice Kennedy is getting up there. He was the longest serving justice at the time of his death. So yeah, he had been around for quite some time. Um, And that's become typical in the modern day. I mean, there was a lot of sentiment among liberals, Democrats, that Ruth Bader Ginsburg should be sort of conservative and resign her seat before Democrats lost a a Senate majority a a couple years ago. But she liked her job and she wanted to sort of push the envelope. And this became a big subject of conversation in in liberal circles and Democratic politics. She's basically gambling that either Hillary Clinton or or Bernie Sanders will win the election or else that she can live through an entire Republican's uh, term in office. I would not put that past Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I mean, maybe she will. I think she might be the one immortal justice. But, But, But I just want a note on a meta level because yeah. I think this goes to what we're about to talk about. This is a really ghoulish conversation to have. Yes. And it's a conversation that is created and it happens constantly on both sides of the aisle. And it's a conversation driven by these lifetime appointments because it's not that it would never happen in other contexts. If you imagine Supreme Court justices with 18 year, 15 year terms, you could still have one who's had a lot of health care problems and still be looking at strategic retirement questions. But 
it is the case that Supreme Court justices tend to like their job. They do it till they are very, very, very elderly or until they, they die in office. And so you, you have this sort of strange pressure on them to retire maybe before they feel they can't do their job, but in time for a co-partisan to appoint their replacement. And it's a bit of a gross feature of contemporary American politics. It, right. it is driven by a, a very strange quirk of our system that, that Matt, as I think this was in a paper you found, is unique to our political system. Yeah, I mean, I, w- I was looking at Stephen Calabresi and, and James Lindgren have a, an article, Term Limits for the Supreme Court. Life Tenure Reexamined is, is the title. Anyway, it's a, it's a law review article, so it's like hideously long. It has <laughs> a bajillion footnotes. But if you ignore the footnotes, it, it gets shorter. And it, it just, it, it contained like this striking fact that 49 states don't do this life tenure thing. And all other democracies don't do life tenure. Now, their systems differ quite a bit from country to country. Some, it's they have a mandatory retirement age of 70 or 75, usually. Some have just terms. You know, you sit for 11 years. So the article goes through a, a lot of ins and outs. But I, I really thought that was just a, a good factoid because, it you know, there's a certain amount of where's the burden of proof on these things? And when you're asking for a change in something that we've done since the founding of the Republic, you know, people say, well, you know, is the system really so broken that we need to fix it? But on the other hand, you have this evidence that nobody else is doing it this way. And the kinds of things that originally motivated lifetime tenure, uh, if you read um, Alexander Hamilton's uh, Federalist paper on on life tenure, I believe it's number 78, So he goes to these different reasons, and a lot of them have to do with the specific details of monarchies. And what he seems to be considering as the alternative is that the king could hire and fire judges. And by making appointments for life in the old British common law system, you had a judiciary that had practical independence from the king. We've created in the United States a lot of positions that have that kind of operational independence from the president, Federal Reserve governors, a lot of regulatory agencies. The president can't just fire SEC commissioners, but he picks them and then they do what they want. So we can sort of address that. Hamilton also says you couldn't get qualified people, that people wouldn't want to do the job unless they had this kind of lifetime guarantee. That just seems wrong. Like, it it would be awesome to be a Supreme Court justice. But other countries, at any rate, have properly staffed judiciaries. They they don't all work. And Uh, people run for president, even though it's only a four-year term. It's not like people look at the presidency and say, like, eh, only four years. Like, I would rather do something else with my time. And it seems like, you know, the paper you found, the other scholarship that exists, people are kind of, like, circling on 18-year terms. So we're talking about, like, terms that are much longer than the presidency. They still let people stay in office and kind of develop a jurisprudence through that. It allows some independence from um, weathers of political storms. And it seems like this is where legal scholarship is converging. You actually don't. I was trying to find some defenses of lifetime tenure, and those are actually a lot harder to find right now. But you did find one. I found one. I think like we should summarize about. that. Yeah, what is later. I think this has become such like a prevailing opinion right. among elites. Like Rick Perry in 2002. 12 ran for president arguing that we should have 15 year. Right. So it's almost flipped where, you know, basically it seems like the prevailing, like the CW is that, you know, we should have these limited terms, even though Congress has taken no steps towards those. There's another paper. It's from a guy named um, David Strauss at University of Minnesota, where he, he did still argues for some reform. But basically his view is that if we create these 18 year terms where usually it's talked about, you'd have each every two years a new justice come up, a new justice Mm -hmm. replaced. You'd have a lot of judicial turmoil where you'd have so much change on the court where you could see the jurisprudence just really like flipping back and forth. So, for example, abortion is an issue where you could see Roe versus Wade kind of in the course of Obama presidency. The right to abortion becomes legal in the course of a George W. Bush presidency. It becomes illegal or unconstitutional and it kind of swings back and forth. So you have all this turnover that is one thing that the lifetime limit basically we're talking about bringing new people to the court, having shorter terms, making sure people are still mentally agile. His idea, which is an interesting one, I don't know if it would work, is actually to create kind of golden parachutes for Supreme Court justices. So he wants to. It sounds, and Ezra's laughing at this. I thought um, it was a... I don't think it's as insane as it sounds. <laughs> I'm not um, saying it sounds insane. I'm just saying it seems unlikely to me that Supreme Court justices are so heavily motivated by pension concerns. No, but... 
Well, so let's okay, go through the idea so, before. So the I... idea for golden parachutes for justices is this: is that once justices turn sixty-five, we should offer them a very handsome compensation package for not working. So essentially, double their salary, and then the amount they're paid will kind of go down towards their salary over the course. I think it phases out at like eighty-five. I don't really know what it does with justices who live longer than eighty-five. And another thing that's part of this feature is not just the golden parachute, but also allowing these kind of senior justices more responsibility. Mm-hmm. Where right now, I don't know if this is still true. It was true at the time that this paper was written in 2005. I mean, you could be a senior justice. You could be a retired Supreme Court justice, but your office was like literally in another building. You would have to walk 10 minutes over to the court, which if you're like 80 is probably not the most convenient thing. So the idea is to involve these senior justices more in the system and essentially give them a little bit more work, not necessarily voting on the cases and a lot of money. His case, you know, if you look back, is that you have a lot of justices who are infirm, and there seems to be at least some evidence that they're staying in it because they do need some kind of salary. They likely are well-off people, but at the same time, doubling their salary is like a pretty strong economic incentive to get out of there. So that's the case for so Golden Parachutes. So let me suggest that there is a weird internal contradiction in this paper. And I like this paper. I, was, I think it makes it as good a case as you're likely to find for the lifetime appointment. But one of the arguments it makes about why it would be bad to go down to 18-year terms is that if you went down to 18-year terms, all of a sudden Supreme Court justices would be scheming about what do they do at the end of their term, right? And it, it kind of worries about a situation akin to the congressional revolving door where Supreme Court justices, particularly towards the end of their term, because they know they're going to be functionally unemployed in two or three or four years, are, you know, thinking a little bit about who do they want to work for next? How do they make a lot of money? That might affect their jurisprudence. It certainly might affect views of their jurisprudence. It could be that people look backwards after some Supreme Court justice retires at 64 and then goes to a big white shoe law firm. And then all of a sudden people are looking back at their cases and saying, well, you know, were they just currying favor with these big corporate clients? So that is a version of this argument that says right now Supreme Court justices are not motivated by money because obviously they could all just retire at 65 now and go get paid any amount of money they possibly wanted anywhere in the world, right? There is no law firm that would not pay a justice millions and millions of dollars a year that has that money. So the idea that doubling their salary is a key thing here. Insofar as the paper has a belief that they are motivated by salary, the paper really does not have a way to explain why they aren't just retiring now because if what they want to do is make money. The way to do it is to retire early and go and make money not from a federal government pension but have Harvard Law School even, which is a, a less ethically challenging thing. I'm sure Harvard Law School would pay a former Supreme Court justice $800,000 a year to teach there. I mean, the fundraising they could do off of that alone would be tremendous. So I did think that there was a an oddity to the answer that it tried to give. One thing, though, I do wanted to, to point out from the paper that I thought was interesting. This is something I don't think we really like to talk about or know how to talk about all that well, but the paper takes seriously and a lot of Supreme Court legal work takes seriously the idea that a number of justices are staying on the court beyond their period of mental acuity. And I think if you look at Scalia, that was not true with him. I think that there are obviously a lot of examples when Oliver Wendell Holmes is somebody who stayed on for a long time and was clearly doing brilliant work you know, well into his 80s. So it's not true with everybody. And it feels like a shitty thing to even talk about, but it's been true and there's been a lot of legal scholarship on this question. It has been true with a number of justices where they either just didn't want to retire or for strategic reasons they were refusing to retire. And as such, they were on the court years after they were probably mentally capable of doing that job at its highest level. And so something this paper and and the legal scholarship is pretty concerned about is this idea of people for reasons of personal ego, of not of just enjoying their job, of enjoying the status of their job, or of worrying about the, the partisanship, their replacement, end up on the court and degrading the court's actual capacity as they stay on long past the time when, when they should retire. But again, I think that is a, a strong argument for these 18-year terms, which also, by the way, would mean when we nominate justices, we don't have to look for someone who's going to live as long as possible. So you're not trying to game lifespan quite as much. Well, and you could even do the, the opposite. I mean, you could set a, a minimum age for Supreme Court justices. Oh, the, the way we do, the president, I forget what it is. Um, but, you know, you could say you have to be at least 55 and have a nice pension so that you wouldn't even have so much of this, like, 
post court employment. Type. It's one more, more way millennials are getting screwed in today's economy. Yeah, it's it's rough. <laughs> I, it also seems to me that the greater turnover and possible instability of the jurisprudence is actually a benefit to creating some kind of regular turnover. That part of the problem with the current Supreme Court is that the authority that is vested with is so overwhelming and uncheckable and in practice cannot be overturned in any kind of way. And it would be healthy for the justices to just like have the reality check that like if nobody will back this up, it's just going to flip in a little bit. And so you've got to really think about is this persuasive? Like are, are new justices who come on going to be willing to agree with this? Is there any hope that society is going to stand with this ruling. We wound up not going there with the Obamacare cases, but there was a real sort of possibility, it seemed to me, that Supreme Court justices were going to just sort of wade into the middle of a partisan political controversy, knowing full well that that was what they were doing, and just kind of like take a big whack for one side of it. And of course, there have been very, very contentious cases in, in the past, in, in the 50s and, and in the 70s in, in particular, but we did not have the kind of strong partisan polarization that exists now, back then. So it didn't have exactly the same valence. And insofar as we're going to have very polarized, very partisan politics, and that's going to be reflected in the judiciary, it just seems like it would be a good idea, honestly, for the Supreme Court to roughly reflect the balance of power in partisan politics so that to get an enduring majority on the court, you would need to have enduring majorities in the White House and the Senate. Because then you would say, well, okay, the reason Republicans dominate the Supreme Court is that they're dominating everything. And like, if one party dominates everything, that's what should happen. But that if there's a lot of turnover back and forth, the court should not be this like entrenched center of, of power for one side. And that that's sort of part of the big problem with life tenure. I mean, that's why Republicans are rightly freaked out at the possibility of like losing a justice unexpectedly. So one thing Strauss raises in the paper, which I think is a valid kind of response to that, is looking at how kind of prevailing political wins might end up factoring into decisions. So one of the mm -hmm. cases he looks at is like Brown versus the Board of Education. Where he says, you know, I could see in a world where we had someone new coming on every two years that, you know, you could see that case kind of going back and forth for longer when you, it, you can respond to this. You're shaking your head a little bit, which our audience cannot see. But I think it's, I, I don't know, what's your... Well, I mean, my, my response to that is there, there was no, I mean, Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, there was this huge multi-decade strand of anti-segregation presidents selected. That's how anti-segregation justices got appointed. It, of course, would be unfortunate if it, that hadn't been the case. But like, I think it's a, a conceit of certain judges and constitutional law professors that like a handful of heroic lawyers battling the forces of the political system, undid segregation. Uh, but if you look at it, like that's it's clearly not true. Desegregation started uh, with, with Roosevelt's war something-something board. Uh, Truman desegregated the military. Eisenhower, I think there's a, a great book called A Matter of Justice about Eisenhower and civil rights, and he was trying to win black voters back for the Republican Party and deliberately appointed pro-civil rights federal judges. The Kennedy administration, you know, has been dramatized many times, was torn in, in different ways, but was trying to show solidarity there. And so I think of that as an example of the interplay between politics and judging working as it should, that the forces that dominate national politics came to the fore in the judiciary, and that what people rightly worry about now, but particularly with uncertain deaths, is this kind of slippage. Like what Republicans are worried about now, right, is Obama will put some 52-year-old judge on the Supreme Court. Then Republicans will win the election in 2016. They will have control of the presidency, both houses of Congress, the overwhelming majority of state governments, they will have said, society has chosen us. We are going to govern now. But look, there's going to be this block of, you know, Kagan, Sotomayor, hypothetical Obama judge, and they, in fact, get the final word on everything. But just because Scalia be, happened to that die. That would still be somewhat, well, I guess, you right, you'd have the terms turning over. But that's, with 18-year terms, like, are not short. Like, the term limits we're talking about are still... Very solid, long ones. Like, we're not talking about switching to, like, a four-year yeah, well, term for justices. But this is, again, a place in the paper I thought was a little bit peculiar. 
They make the point that if you have 18-year terms, it would increase the rate of majority turnover on the court by about 25%. Now, that is faster, and maybe it'll be even faster than that in the future, depending on like how these things are chosen and whatever, and, and, and compared to the counterfactual of how long people stay on the court, but uh, as lifespans hopefully continue to increase. But it's not that much faster. I mean, the, this sort of idea of full turnover is just not that much quicker. I think that if you are going to have a court with this much power long term, and I think if you're going to, to have it in a very ideologically divided country as we are now, the process by which justices are named and, and, and end up wielding power needs to feel pretty legitimate to people. And I think that one real issue here is that the court is just so much decided by tricks of fate and unexpected deaths and, and unexpected illness. So, you know, I think the, the, the good analogy here is that Richard Nixon was elected and he got to name four Supreme Court justices. Jimmy Carter was elected and he got zero. And Richard Nixon's election, his first election and Jimmy Carter's first election, they're like no more legitimate than each other. <laughs> so you just ha end up having this situation where it's fine to say, you know, that the American people should not be changing the court year by year by year by year. But because the American people's views on things change fairly rapidly, you end up having a situation where just when you happen to have a bunch of illnesses or retirements, it matters a lot. Then you can also get into a, a kind of feedback cycle on that. So imagine a court where, let's say, you have six liberal appointees. And maybe they don't win that many presidential elections in the coming 40-year period, but they do win some. And because of strategic retirements, they end up with five liberals after that, even though they should end up with many fewer. So I think one of the things that's a little bit dangerous about the mixture of lifetime appointment and strategic retirement in an era of pretty long lifespans and an area where the justices are getting more and not less ideological is that it ends up taking what fate gives one party or the other and entrenching it then through strategy. And that, I think, will, over the long term, erode a fair amount of court legitimacy. So, I mean, uh, another way of putting this is right now, obviously, liberals, before Scalia's death, had a 4-5 deficit on the court. But they had also won five of the last six presidential popular votes. If they won the next two or three and still couldn't get over that four-person hump, I think you'd start to see a lot of fury about that, that they just were not being able to do what the American people were clearly giving them a mandate to do. And so, so that's why I think like having just like the process by which replacements are made be more just ends up making the case law that is driven by it more legitimate. Let's take a break and, and then let's let's bear into the the sort of the specific, the weeds, as it were, um, of the, the specific uh, case in front of us. So, you know, we've all been there. You come home after a long day at work. You want to just kind of sit down, relax, have a glass of wine. But, you know, if you're like me, like you're never planning ahead. You don't even have anything necessarily in your house. So you got to go to the liquor store. You don't really know what's going on. There's all kinds of different prices. You could ask for a recommendation, but they're probably just going to try to sell you on something expensive. So, you know, I just wind up kind of picking a picking a bottle whose, whose label I like and it looks nice. And that's okay. But, you know, it doesn't always result in a sort of like a great experience. And frankly, it's just also not a great feeling, you know, to feel like you, you're buying something, but you don't really know what you're doing. Uh, and with Club W, you, you never need to worry about that again. It's a revolutionary new wine club that sends wine directly to your house, saving you trips to the grocery store. Not only do they send you wine, but they send you wine that you're really going to love. They do an easy six-question quiz that figures out your palate, and so every bottle you get is perfectly tailored to your tastes. Club W is leading the grape-to-glass wine revolution. They work directly with vineyards to cut out the middleman, which saves you money. And even better, they offer a no-risk guarantee that you're going to love what they send you. So right now, Club W is offering Weeds listeners 50% off your first order when you go to clubw.com weeds. Don't ever come home to a wine-free house again. Just go to clubw.com weeds to get 50% off your first order. That's clubw.com weeds. Okay, so Scalia Scalia died, and, and that that news broke. I saw it on my phone and, and rushed to my my laptop to to pitch in on. I was celebrating coverage. an early Valentine's Day with my wife. Not that's, anymore. That's <laughs> Not anymore. You um, know what's romantic? Writing about the Supreme Court. Yep. Well, that's why. Well, at any rate. Um, <laughs> I, I saw a thing. I think of, we should go down this path. Okay, so so Bloomberg did did a thing recently where they they show what occupational groups are likely to marry which other ones, and and they showed that that news reporters it's a very incestuous circle, and 
there's a lot of uh, partnering within the profession because I think there's understanding about that kind of thing. Yes. You know, when news breaks, you have to you have to ditch the. And he was extremely uh, understanding about this. Yeah. See, that's great. It's it's <laughs> lovely. Um, at any rate, I was obviously started thinking about the politics of replacing Scalia, and I obviously thought it would be a tough sell. Anyone who Obama would feel comfortable appointing was not someone who Senate Republicans were going to be enthusiastic about. Senate Republicans had a majority. So I was looking forward to the big Supreme Court battle. I was a little surprised when almost right away, conservative pundits, then people for some of the sort of more far-right senators, Ted Cruz, Mike Lee, but then very quickly Mitch McConnell, Within too. hours, Mitch McConnell. Yeah. Mitch McConnell articulated the principle, not that he was calling on Barack Obama to put forward a reasonable, strict constructionist, blah, 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 but that he was calling on Barack Obama to not nominate anyone at all because there's an election happening in seven months. For one thing, it seemed weird. For another thing, there didn't seem to me to be any strategic advantage to that. It would be a lot easier to bring up complaints about an actual justice than a totally hypothetical nobody. And it gave Democrats this like it's a little dumb, but this like endless ream of talking points about the 14 justices who have been confirmed in the final year of a presidency, blah, 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 blah. Ezra wrote a semi-persuasive uh, piece explaining Thank you, Matt. I really, <laughs> you don't know how much that means to me. You know, I do think that people sometimes underrate the possibility that there has just been a huge error made. But you argue that there was a, a real deep strategic logic to this, right? That there was no real alternative strategy. Oh, right. Um, I was thinking of a different piece. It was maybe semi-persuasive in a different direction. But let me actually back out on this because I think this is the the backdrop that's worth thinking about a bit. We have a very weird norm in American politics, not a rule, not a law, nothing you have to do, just a norm, that if the president of one party proposes Supreme Court justice and the Senate, which has advice and consent power, is controlled by the other party, that in the absence of extreme ideology or extremely controversial or scandalous background behavior qualifications are enough to put that person on the court. So you have, if I get this wrong, Sarah, Matt, you guys can correct me, but I believe that Roberts is confirmed by Democratic Senate. Is that right? I, I think that that's correct. Yes. But it, whether whether he is or not, obviously there are a number of Supreme Court nominees from both parties who are who are confirmed by an opposing party Senate. And the basic argument there is that at some point, what you're doing is just saying, is this person qualified to be on the Supreme Court? Not, do I think this person would do a good job? Do Would I agree with this person's rulings? This is something Mitch McConnell, back when he was a young lawyer, actually wrote about and talked about how it's important that in our political system, qualifications were enough, which I, I think is probably not where he, he now comes down. The problem is that this norm, which held in a period when American politics was a lot less ideological, has never made all that much sense on its own merits and is making less and less sense now that presidents and political parties are vetting their Supreme Court justices very ideologically. Supreme Court is more ideologically contested and, and votes more along party lines in controversial cases than it has at other points. And so what McConnell now has is this kind of problem where he and his Senate majority have been democratically elected. They have total validity in, in arguing that they speak for the country, just as Obama has simultaneous validity in saying he speaks for the country. And the people who elected Mitch McConnell and his 54 senators do not think that Barack Obama's liberal nominee to the Supreme Court, who will change the balance of power in the Supreme Court for the next couple of decades, is a good idea. That is really not why they elected McConnell and friends. Now, McConnell doesn't want to come out and say that I have decided to throw overboard the idea that a qualified nominee is good enough, even though that is fundamentally here what he is doing. But he doesn't want to say it, just like nobody wants to say it, because explicitly breaking the norm is a very bad look in American politics. So what he did, I think, was come out with this kind of weird and mostly indefensible but procedurally enforceable idea that just they're not going to consider anybody Obama nominates. Now, and I also think he had to do this for another reason, and, and this is what I think the post Matt is referring to, which is that it is, as Matt says, I think, hard to defend the idea that you're simply not going to consider anyone. But hard to defend it from whom? The thing that McConnell and his team are really worried about is not that 
the press is going to be mad at them. It's that Republican primary voters are going to be angry at them. And Republican primary voters would instantly destroy a Republican who compromised with Obama and replaced Scalia with a liberal before an election. So I think that in a way that was actually not a good idea for Republicans, because five months from now, Donald Trump may be headed towards a huge loss against Hillary Clinton. It may be very possible Democrats are going to take the Senate. And McConnell may wish he had done a compromise nominee with Obama as opposed to letting President Hillary Clinton do a much more liberal nominee when she wins election. But he had to just take that off the board for himself because in order just to keep Republicans happy and in order to keep his senators out of a primary fire, which a lot of them are, are, are going to be facing soon, a lot of them will be facing primaries, he just had to take this off the table and just make it a non-issue for uh, among the conservative base. Right, in kind of the same way, like Obama can't really do a recess appointment, I would say, for the same risk of like firing up the base on the right, where I actually have not researched much of the regulations around recess appointment. There might also be logistical issues around it. But even if you wanted to do a recess appointment, I would imagine seeing so much political risk in that of, you know, people saying, look what Obama did without the will of the Senate, that it would essentially block off that it option. It also just wouldn't get you that far, right? Because a recess appointment would end just at the end of the congressional term. Right. And so, like, you'd have a Scalia replacement for a right. couple months, but... Yeah. Well, yeah, but that also gets to, so this probably won't be like a super popular argument, but I'm actually, I'm not as outraged by like what the Republicans are doing. It's not especially obstructionist. I understand they'll get to kind of determine more the fate of the Supreme Court. But when you look at the practical outcomes of what happens of having eight justices versus nine justices, it actually doesn't change that much. You, know, you could end up with a few ties, which leave the, whatever the circuit court ruled that leaves that standing. So in the case of the big abortion case in front of the Supreme Court justices, that would leave the Texas abortion law standing because the Fifth Circuit ruled in front of it. But it really, when I you know look at shutting down the government, like messing with the debt ceiling, of all the battles we have had, this doesn't strike me as such a massive one because we kind of continue running pretty okay in a world where we have eight justices. Well, so I guess I, I would not characterize myself as outraged, but I do think that it is very silly. You know, so one person who has said that senators should just vote based on the ideological leanings of judicial nominees is Chuck Schumer, who's going to be Democratic leader and may wriggle away from this position if Obama puts forward a nominee. Uh, but I, I, I happen to remember, because I was an intern in his communications office, <laughs> when we when we rolled this policy out in the summer of 2000, there's a great New York Times op-ed published in July of 2000 <laughs> that I helped out on. And, you know, what he says is that these are very important jobs, that presidents obviously are not picking judges at random or just looking at their resumes, that they are trying to consider how would they rule, and that senators should also make that consideration. And, you know, I remember when that came out, there was a certain amount of sort of controversy uh, around it in this nascent legal blogosphere. And the concern that people had was that we would end up in the situation that we are now in, which is just a deadlock where senators are completely refusing to fill vacancies. And that's a, you know, a situation that's actually been evolving over time. It's not just the Scalia vacancy. Uh, McConnell has been basically refusing to confirm any appeals court judges in, in this last term. And Democrats did something similar at the end of Bush's term. The parties will get into it back and forth about who's at fault. But as Obama said in his press conference, it's really a, a cycle where, you know, each time the, the configuration flips, the parties take the previous behavior as a baseline and then they push it a, a little bit more. And that's polarization. But if you could say in an above board way what it is you were arguing about, then it's at least conceivable that you can resolve certain disputes through a compromise. You know, you see that as dangerous as debt ceiling hijinks and government shutdown hijinks get from time to time, they ultimately have been resolved. And it doesn't, it's not impossible for people who strongly disagree about substantive issues to reach accommodations with each other. There's trade-offs and, and things you can do. But in order to make those trade-offs and make those kind of arrangements, you have to be able to say something about what it is you're arguing over. The principle that the president is not allowed to fill vacancies is really not something that the White House can bargain away or even talk about because it's like you're 
winning a concession that isn't a, a concession of, of any kind. So I would be a lot happier, and I think it would be a lot healthier for the country if Republicans said, obviously, President Obama should nominate somebody. We are very skeptical that this White House is going to produce someone we are going to be willing to confirm, but let's just see. Right. And and so I, I think to, to bring some synthesis here, like Sarah, I am not outraged by the underlying position here at all. Like Matt, I am very annoyed by the fake layering of, of this faux position because I agree. I think it makes it very hard to just talk about what we're talking about. I think that we are in a place where it is a totally valid argument. The Republicans do not want to confirm an Obama appointee. That said, it is clearly not true that if Barack Obama decided to troll the Republican Party and nominate Ted Cruz tomorrow, <laughs> actually, Senate Republicans might hate Ted Cruz so much that they also would not confirm him. But the underlying point, if, if Obama came out and actually proposed a replacement for Scalia, right, if he actually came out with a conservative judge, of course, Republicans would confirm that person. They would love to have the bird in the hand as opposed to hoping that this primary they have no ability to control whatsoever goes in the direction they want to. And similarly, and I was sort of saying this before, but that if McConnell had made that ideological argument, if he had just said that we take our, our responsibility here very seriously, we want to see someone who we think will take the court in a good direction, not just somebody who went to good law schools. We're willing to look at anybody the president puts up, but, but we're going to be very skeptical. That would have given McConnell also maneuvering room if, you know, again, like six or seven months from now, it becomes completely clear that the, the configuration following the election is probably going to be President Hillary Clinton and probably going to be a reduced Republican majority in the Senate or a Democratic majority in the Senate. But McConnell did take that off of the table himself. And, and I do think this goes to a broader thing going on here, which is just the dysfunction in the Republican Party, which you're seeing in a, it crop up in a lot of different ways. I think a very simple way to say what's been going on in the presidential election is that the conservative grassroots does not trust the Republican Party establishment, does not trust its elected officials to make good decisions, and so has been ignoring their signals and rallying around people like Donald Trump or people like Ted Cruz. This is driven by a feeling that they cannot trust the, the Republican Party elite and that they need somebody from outside to, to represent them effectively. Similarly here, McConnell is responding to that exact same feeling. He is basically saying to, Repo to, to grassroots Republicans, you don't trust me, right? You don't trust me to retain maneuvering room because you're worried I'm going to use that maneuvering room badly. So I'm just going to take that maneuvering room off the table. I'm going to say in a blanket way right now, like, I'm just not going to make any decisions. We're just not going to let Obama do this. And I think this is one of these things. And again, like with the things you see happening in the presidential election, where Republicans are finding themselves very strategically impoverished. They're finding themselves very strategically dysfunctional because they just don't have the trust from their base to make some of the public compromises or strike some of the public positions that could ultimately lead to better outcomes, but that require a certain amount of belief among everyday Republicans that the people representing them are strategically aligned with them and know what they're doing. Well, I mean, part of that is because they're not always strategically aligned with them. Like if you're like a base Republican voter, like looking at the last fight over government funding, where for a while, you know, John Boehner said, we're going to talk about defunding Planned Parenthood. We're really going to talk about defunding Planned Parenthood. And then like defunding Planned Parenthood clearly falls off the table like pretty quickly this time. It fell off a little slower in previous fight. I totally see how Mitch McConnell ends up in the situation where he takes this maneuvering room off the table. I don't know if it restrains him in six months, because you know what? In six months, he can say he's had a change of heart. He's kind of like rethought it. I kind of see it as a strong political bit at this point when you're really going into the election and you're really trying to get your base fired up to say, you know, we're not going to give any maneuvering room. We're going to stick with this. And then, you know, who knows in six months, like politicians make conflicting statements all the time. You could, I could see him easily backing off if things are not looking there's good. Also, there's also the possibility, I, I think one thing I've, I've seen discussed is that Obama will want to put forward a relatively moderate nominee to sort of maximize the political advantage in this situation. Republicans can say, well, we're refusing to do any hearings on him. All Democrats will line up behind the proposition that that refusal is outrageous. But Senate Republicans can always, once that nominee is there, they can always flip-flop on that. They can even flip-flop after the election. 
after Hillary Clinton is elected and after they lose control of the Senate, they can, in the lame duck session, say, oh, yeah, we're taking that moderate nominee. We're not going to let Hillary come in and put somebody more liberal. Well, although I think there you might find that the that all of a sudden the liberals now. <laughs> right. But, but there'll be nothing they can do about it. That's the point. Like once the well, I mean, Obama. I, couldn't Obama? It, this is now just total speculation. But I sort of imagine if Hillary Clinton now has won the election, unless Clinton says to Obama, "Right, listen, get this off the table. I don't want to spend my first hundred days on a totally a controversial Supreme Court nomination." I do wonder if Obama will have to say, "Like, look at this point. Like, I am a lame yeah, duck. This I, feels like a shitty thing." I to mean, do. I don't know if you can if you can actually call backseas on, on a <laughs> like that. The other thing I, I wanted to say here because we we don't happen to have a a strong social conservative evangelical Christian around the table here is that uh, Republican base voters have some particular reason to be a little distrustful of their leadership on judicial subjects that I think sure. is, is more warranted, frankly, than on, on most issues. I think in general in American politics, you've seen over the past 30 years a, a Republican Party that is more unified and more ideological than, than the Democratic Party. But when it comes to Supreme Court judges, Republicans, particularly Reagan and George H.W. Bush, have put on the bench Sandra Day O'Connor and Anthony Kennedy, who have been definitely conservative, but have tilted to the left on certain social and, and cultural issues. And then they put Souter on, who went all the way to the left. Democrats have not put a rogue justice on, on the bench since a, a guy named, I forget his first name, White, who Kennedy put on. You know, obviously liberals- Wait, Is it Wizard White? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Best first name of any Supreme Court justice uh, ever. Liberals obviously don't like every single ruling by every single Democratic appointed judge, but none of them have ever like gone rogue. Uh, and the Reagan administration, particularly if you look at his, his circuit court nominees, uh, a lot of, uh, they're older now, uh, but still famous uh, appeals court nominees like Richard Paz. Alex Kaczynski were Reagan administration appointees, and they lean toward the right on business, economic type issues, but tilt more toward the left on, on social cultural type issues. And there's a deep and I think not unwarranted suspicion among committed social conservatives that a fair amount of the Republican Party party structure is kind of just like fucking around with them and doesn't really care about these issues. And that this particularly comes to a head around judicial nominees where there isn't the kind of strict accountability. I mean, it doesn't matter whether Mitch McConnell, deep in his heart, cares about defunding Planned Parenthood because you can just check and see what he does. But with the judges, you have all the time, like Barack Obama put Elena Kagan on the Supreme Court and basically had to just say to his base, trust me. She was White House counsel. Presumably the two of them had had the opportunity to talk about <laughs> what she thinks about things. But like, I didn't know. You know, like I never spoke to her. She doesn't have any record as a judge. And, you know, members of the Senate and interest groups are just asked to sort of believe that the president has, has vetted these things. And Republicans have been burned by that many times. And that's well remembered by activists on these kind of issues. I have a deep and committed suspicion it is time for an ad break. Like so many of you, we really love to learn new things. That's why we're so excited about the new Great Courses Plus video learning service. It gives you unlimited access to the giant library of the Great Courses lecture series in so many fascinating subjects. you got history, which I love, but science, things like cooking. Uh, so we love Great Courses Plus, and they're going to give our listeners an incredible opportunity right now. You can watch one of their most popular courses. The Inexplicable Universe, Unsolved Mysteries, absolutely free. Inexplicable Universe is presented by the well-respected astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson. It's exploring some of the universe's biggest mysteries. He really takes complicated topics and makes them understandable. It's something very voxy, very weedsy, but on a, a totally different subject. You know, you got quantum foam, string theory, black holes. You're going to learn a ton. At least, uh, you know, I will. So just for a limited time, The Great Courses Plus is offering our listeners a chance to stream this course, Inexplicable Universe, Unsolved Mysteries. It's a $95 value and hundreds of other courses, all for free. But this free offer is only available for a limited time, so hurry. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. So I think that so far on this episode of The Weeds, we have struck a modest, sober tone on, on this fairly hot controversy. I think this sort of the easy temperature of this room has let us all be kind of calm and not, not as upset as we normally are. So I really want to get hysterical here for a minute. 
And the the paper that I was thinking about while I was watching this play out was a paper by Juan Linz, and and I'm blanking on the name of it. The Do Perils you... of Presidential Democracy. Thank you. This is a paper that has become very in vogue in the last six or seven years, I would say, particularly among liberal or left-leaning writers who are trying to think through the consequences of, of, of heavy polarization on the political system. But, but Juan Linz is... Uh, he died a couple years ago, but he was a Yale sociologist, and he specialized in comparative political systems. And his paper basically begins with the idea that there is nowhere other than Chile and the United States where a political system like ours has had a long history of constitutional continuity. And he makes the argument that the core problem in our political system and the core problem in, in systems like ours is that you have simultaneous branches of government that need to work together to get to outcomes and that have simultaneous democratic legitimacy. And so that when they disagree, there's no actual way to resolve the dispute. So right now we have this happening pretty exactly. We have a Senate that is run by Republicans and they were democratically elected. They have democratic legitimacy. We have a White House controlled by a Democrat. He is democratically elected. He has democratic legitimacy. And this could be what we have, by the way, after the election too. We could have President Hillary Clinton. We could have Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. And as such, you would need for these two institutions somehow to work together to come up with a compromise. But if they can't, then there's no real way to, to fix it. In most systems, when you do this for long enough, you eventually get a coup. You eventually have an irresolvable political dispute that leads to a military takeover. So there are a lot of reasons this hasn't happened here. Obviously, America has had a very successful country based on this kind of political system for a long time now. But among the reasons, and this paper was written in 1991, but among the reasons Linz points out is that America has something very unusual, which is, or it had something very unusual, which is that its political parties were not very ideologically distinct. The Republican Party contained both liberals and conservatives. The Democratic Party contained both liberals and conservatives. And that made the bitterness of the divisions and the intractability of the disagreements pretty low by international standards. You, you, you always really had ways for, in which people could compromise. And that made compromise unusually easy in this political system. And as such, the fact that there's no way to resolve intractable standoffs didn't matter that much because you just didn't have that many intractable standoffs. Republicans could always find some conservative Democrats to work with. Democrats could always find some moderate or liberal Republicans to work with. This, we, we completely know for sure, is not the case in American politics right now. You have highly ideologically distinct parties. There is no Democrat who is more conservative than any Republican serving in Congress. There is no Republican more liberal than any Democrat serving in Congress. So you have these large and growing disagreements. And alongside these large and growing disagreements, you have a breakdown of a lot of different norms that have prevailed in American politics before. The one that I think is really important here, which, which I talked about a little bit ago, is the norm that the president can nominate a Supreme Court justice. And even if the dominant party in Congress doesn't agree with the president on what a good Supreme Court justice is, qualifications are enough. And I think one quiet reason that norm persisted was that there were a lot of people in the opposing party who kind of did agree with the president on whether his Supreme Court justice was a good pick. But now that that is not true, now that Republicans and Democrats have such a sharp disagreement over what the Supreme Court should and should not do in the next 20 or 30 years, that norm is breaking down because it's just becoming too ridiculous to uphold it. It's becoming too much of a betrayal of your base. You were talking about evangelical conservatives. And if you believe abortion is murder, replacing Antonin Scalia with someone who will create a 5-4 pro-abortion rights majority on the Supreme Court, and Mitch McConnell says, but oh, the person was qualified, that is just not a, a plausible argument at all. And, and conversely, I don't think liberals would be very happy with the idea that Majority Leader Reid let through a, a crucial new justice who would take down things like Obamacare because that justice was simply qualified. So I think that we're seeing here a, a broader problem and pattern we've been seeing in American life for, you know, in, in recent years, which is this question of can divided government really govern? Can divided government come to compromises on things that are big and hard and controversial? They can obviously do some things, but we've seen, you know, the possibility of debt ceiling breaches. We see the possibility here of an extended absence on the Supreme Court. And I want to be clear, like, I'm not saying this is going to lead to a coup, and I'm not saying this is going to lead to a constitutional collapse or crisis, but I do think 
we are seeing a way in which the ability of the American political system to govern is potentially degrading because if divided government can't do hard things and if you can't even do things like fill a Supreme Court justice in the 25 percent of years that are a presidential election year, over a long period of time, if you can't govern at least 25 percent of the time and can't govern that well the other 75 percent either, it's going to hurt your country. One of the things I found a little misleading about the Lytton's paper, and it's one of the things you quoted as the quote about Chile, that you know there's two countries that had long-running presidential democracies, including Chile's, which failed in the 1970s. But you also just don't see a lot of developed countries taking stabs at presidential democracies. I was reading some of the responses to Lynn's, and one of the main critiques that seems to come up, most of those attempts have taken place in less developed countries. So, you know, that's kind of setting them back. You know, to your point, you know, no one's talking about a world where um, that we, like, end up just unable to confirm Supreme Court justices, where this is just, like, a thing that our political system can't do. And this is something kind of you, I know you've written about before, where it seems like eventually, you know, we'll get past the election, we'll will appoint someone and the Supreme Court will basically like function fine in like an eight justice world. Nothing about American democracy will change that much. And, and kind of land, you know, where you, you land in a piece you wrote for Fox, where it seems like we'll end up kind of muddling along almost through this, where we will keep functioning in some sort of way. We might change some rules some norms will change to accommodate this divided government. But I don't find the history of failed democracy is that damning to suggest that this thing we're doing is definitely, as Matt writes, doomed. I want to ramp up the alarmism. (laughs) Let's say we have an election this fall, and let's say that the election is close, and let's say that the election comes down to the crucial swing states of Ohio and Florida, and let's say that Democrats complain that the election administration in both of those states, which is controlled by Republican secretaries of state, has been unfair. And let's say there's litigation about this, as we had in 2000. And then let's say one circuit court rules in favor of the Democrats and another circuit court rules in favor of the Republicans. So then it goes to the Supreme Court where it deadlocks at 4-4 because there isn't a ninth justice. (laughs) So we have a circuit split on the question of who is the president of the United States. Now, obviously, this is a little unlikely, right? I mean, we're, we're... piling a couple of unlikely things on top of each other. But I think that when I make, because I do make this strong Lindsayan claim here that this system is doomed, people respond with what amounts to the argument that, look, the central tendency in any given year, the most probable forecast is that we will muddle along. And that's totally true. Most years, no Supreme Court justice dies. Most elections aren't that close. You tend not to have these kind of overlapping things. But the problem is, I in some ways want to be deflationary about my alarmism, because sometimes when you cast this, people say, oh, well, the Iglesias is saying there's going to be like massacres in the streets and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I don't mean that. I mean, if you if you look at Honduras, if you, Chile is an example where it got quite violent. But most of the breakdowns of presidential systems are resolved with a minimal level of violence, but with disorder in the streets and, and non-legal uh, c- kinds of processes. And... Sooner or later, if our governing philosophy is to muddle through with no way to make decisions on crucial events, sooner or later, we're going to have a slippage and someone is going to have to do something. And, and I think one telling example, if you look at budget disputes in 2011, which took place in both the United States and in Canada, what happened in Canada was parliament would not pass the budget that Stephen Harper wanted. So he told the governor general that they had an irresolvable deadlock and they had to have a new election. So they campaigned for seven weeks. His party won the election and then he went and passed the budget. What we had in the United States was this like crazy scenario in which we were going to default on the national debt and people were saying, very serious people were saying in like New York Times op-eds that what the president should do is take a clause of the 14th Amendment that was intended <laughs> to ensure the validity of civil war debts and just assert that the debt ceiling was uh, invalid. You had other people, myself included, <laughs> saying that you should take a poorly drafted statute about platinum commemorative coins and have the president mint a trillion dollar coin and say we could we could pay off the debts that way. As it happens, they, they resolve the dispute. I think it is reasonably likely, right, if you, if you replay that, that the odds of 
one or the other of that 14th Amendment or platinum coin scenarios coming to pass are, you know, decent. And that would not amount to, it's not the same thing as like tanks in the streets squashing Tea Party protesters. But both of those are would basically be the president throwing up his hands and saying, fuck it, the system doesn't work. We're just not going to default on our debts and counting on the rank and file staff in the Treasury Department and the SEC and everywhere else just taking his word for it. Because nobody really wanted that sort of crisis to happen. And most likely, I think, if the president had simply asserted that those payments to bondholders were valid, that people would have gone forward with it. So I'm going to take a a responsible middle ground of kind of collapse here. So, so one about the critique of Lindsay's paper. Let me let me stand up for it on, on two measures. One thing I think is very, very telling is that one reason you don't have more examples of this kind of presidential democracy is countries believe this argument is correct. And one of the countries that believes this argument is correct is the U.S. We repeatedly invade or help invade countries and then restructure their political systems. And the thing we never, ever do, the thing we have never done, not in Japan, not in Germany, not in Iraq. Matt, you had a whole list of these. Well, Italy, Austria, Germany, Japan, (laughs) Iraq. There was in in Afghanistan, even more tellingly, the United States came in with its usual invade and occupy handbook and was like, we're going to write a proper constitution modeled on on the German one. And Hamid Karzai, who we wanted to have as the leader, was like, no, 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 no. I want to be president. And so that became an issue at, at the Bonn conference. And the U.S. gave in to his desire to be able to operate as a dictator. And, you know, it, it's been a real problem for Afghanistan. But... <laughs> but so we don't even we don't rebuild other political systems in this way. It's not exactly clear why we don't. But I think it bespeaks a, a lack of faith in our own and a recognition that in a system with weak institutions, that you cannot handle these contradictions effectively. So that's, I think, one point for the Linz paper. The other thing is that the Linz paper, I, I would not buy it if it were just correlational data, right? If it was just saying, hey, look, this doesn't seem to work that well, but it worked that well a couple of times. I mean, we only have so many observations, like it's not that convincing. But one thing I think it does is it lays out a mechanism that if you're just watching American politics right now, is a very persuasive mechanism and helps explain a lot of what's going on, which is that you have clear incentives for the parties who disagree on incredibly important things, like literally matters of life and death. You have clear incentives for them to deadlock and never resolve. And you have no way to to hit resolution. And the only reason you eventually do hit resolution is these kinds of norms that nobody can explain why they happen or why they work. So, and, And this brings us back, I think, a little bit to the Supreme Court case where nobody can really explain why we have a norm where... The Senate decides it is not the co-equal of the president and just lets the president ultimately do what he wants so long as his nominee passes a certain level of credentialism. And my thesis is what's happening now is that norm is being narrowed. So now we're saying that norm doesn't apply in in the one out of four years, which is an election year. And I think what everybody is hoping is going to happen, if you're Mitch McConnell or if you're Barack Obama, is that the election just decides it. Either Democrats have power, they can pass what they want. Republicans have power, they can do what they want. But either way, like we don't have to face a question of what if it's Hillary Clinton and 54 Republican senators? Who does pass? Does anybody pass? Maybe not, right? Maybe you do just end up having a year in the first of Hillary Clinton's years in office where nobody passes and, and we just begin to have like a very lengthy vacancy in the Supreme Court. When I say that I think ultimately the system will muddle along, that we're not headed for a Honduras like collapse, I do not mean that in the sense of it will be okay. I actually mean it in a more alarmist way than that. I think that you're going to see over time many crises, including potentially a debt ceiling breach, that leads to serious reforms of parts of the system that make it work worse in this polarized age. So, I mean, you could do a lot of things that would relieve pressure. Senate Republicans have already talked about eliminating the filibuster on all Supreme Court nominees. So that is something where if Republicans or Democrats, if one party controlled the Senate and the White House, that makes it clear they would be able to put whoever they wanted on the Supreme Court and that obstructionism from the minority party would no longer matter. So it's clear now, given that idea is on the table and could be done with 51 votes because of the weird way the Senate works, that a filibuster against the Supreme Court nominee, which used to be a very real thing, is no longer a powerful weapon. That's one way in which I think you see this system responding to its own dysfunction. I think eventually we're very likely to have a death ceiling breach or something so near to it that we just get rid of the debt ceiling entirely and just make it so that Congress can't hurt the country that way from, from an artificial crisis. 
And I just think that we're over time going to see some real problems. And I think we're going to respond to them to some degree substantively. I mean, it, I really think one of the undercovered stories of Obama's presidency is the degree to which Senate Democrats seriously weakened the filibuster in 2013. They used 51 votes and they just like they, they really took it down at a moment when people didn't expect they'd be able to or willing to do that. And so muddling, I don't think it is easy here and I don't think it's safe. I think it is an approach that is going to lead to smaller crises but not quite collapse. In this case, though, I just think it's a really good example of the underlying dynamics. I think the thing that is really hard to explain, like if you were just trying to explain how American politics works to a smart 12-year-old and you said, well, in order to replace this judge, you need the Senate and the president to agree, but they absolutely don't agree. And this smart 12-year-old would say, well, what do you do? And he'd say, well, eventually the Senate will just decide that it not agreeing just doesn't matter that much. And he'd say, why? And he'd say, well, that's what other Senates have done in the past. And he'd say, why? And he'd say, well, I don't know. Like, They had some high-minded ideas about how American politics should work. If it continues to go like that, that's great. But I just always worry about a situation where you just can't tell a better story than that. Although one thing I think about in kind of Matt's tale of collapse is like, how well a parliamentary system would handle the United States. And, you know, if what's happening, part of it is, you know, political polarization in Washington, if part of it is also just kind of being a large country, like very diverse factions who have very different ideas about how they want this country to work. And you think about parliamentary democracies aren't always functioning at their best, sometimes having trouble forming coalitions, putting together a government, that these are issues that countries run into. And, you know, eventually they usually seem to form a coalition at some point. I know, like, you know, Matt's probably more familiar than I am, but Belgium, for example, you know, has gone through a uh, lot of... Belgium. Belgium, man. <laughs> um, and I, but I wonder... On a very if, special episode of The Weeds. Yes, that, that'll be the weediest <laughs> of the weeds is the Belgium edition. Uh, but, you know, I do wonder if you look at a very big, diverse country in a parliamentary system, like, how that ultimately shakes out. Like, if we end up with these coalitions that don't really work as coalitions, since it is such a big, diverse place, unlike some of the other places where we see parliamentary democracy working well, you know, Belgium's a place where they have really bitter linguistic divides, very, you know, different cultures wanting different things that have made it very difficult to run a functioning government. And like how much, how much of what we see in American politics is, you know, a function of the way we've decided to structure our government and how much of it is a symptom of maybe the United States as a gets bigger and is more diverse, has really different ideologies, really different types of people living in it. And that, you know, whether you're looking at a parliament or a presidential democracy, that is going to make it really tough to find some kind of governing body that seems to speak for the people. I mean, I, I agree. There's obviously difficulties uh, with with diversity, and particularly with with linguistic diversity that you that you see in a, in a number of places. I, you know, that said, I, I think Americans sometimes get an exaggerated view of the the level of of crisis in Belgium because what it's called <laughs> is they don't have a government, quote unquote. But that means like they don't have a formal agreement on you know who holds which cabinet seats. They do now, um, and it, it comes together. People people reach compromises. Nothing makes me feel like more than an old man than coming. <laughs> around to this viewpoint, because it would have really infuriated the, the Matt of 10 years ago. Uh, <laughs> but if you look at it, there are a lot of issues where it seems to me that the median voter, and to an extent, the median members of, of Congress, actually have reasonably clear kinds of answers. And there are nascent bipartisan policy consensuses that could be reached if you had an institutional setup that didn't strongly incentivize the sorting into two parties and then the parties to be pulled towards kinds of bases. Now, people would be very unhappy with a sort of centrist grand coalition governance like they have in Germany right now, because both liberals and conservatives would think it was like too much in the middle. But that would also just kind of be the system functioning. That would be the good kind of muddling through, where you're stuck with the status quo until one side or the other can persuasively mobilize people in defense of its vision. The problem with the United States is that we don't quite have what you would call like gridlock where we don't make dramatic changes one way or the other, is that we have, you know, something more like a like an earthquake setup, right? Where the plates slip every once in a while and buildings fall down, 
right? Whereas it would be fine. And to an extent, what we used to have in divided government was just sort of nothing might happen on big controversial issues because for something to happen, you would need to get concurrent majorities, which was hard. But that's how America is supposed to work, right? It's meant to be a status quo biased system. That's the sort of the Madisonian vision. But what we've developed is a crisis-plagued system where the fact that certain things, the, the routine rhythms of life are like, we need another budget. We need another Supreme Court justice. And it is too difficult for the system to say, we're going to just keep going along until someone has a majority, right? Which would be the logical outcome of division. Gay marriage, right, it did sort of come along in the right kind of way. People argued about it a lot, but what happened was was that eventually most people were persuaded that it was good, and then it was legalized. And, like, that's fine. But uh, most of our issues, that doesn't happen. We don't have, like, stasis followed by change. We have crisis followed by when we're lucky, we reconvene around the status quo. But it's strange to have such a big nasty, potentially cataclysmic fight to reach the conclusion that we won't reform entitlements and we aren't going to have giant tax cuts, right? We should have been able to get to those let's not do anything outcomes in like a pretty smooth way. And it's it's been weird to experience. But you really have to think about like what the system did not come under major pressures during Obama's presidency. We dealt with very banal issues of how much money to spend and how to not reform the tax code. And we barely made it. Right. <laughs> and so it's like, what if something happened for real? That's, I think, what should alarm people. I'm alarmed. Very alarmed. <laughs> Thank you for... <laughs> thanks to everyone for, for listening and hopefully uh, not being too alarmed to come back uh, next week. Thanks to our producer, uh, AC Valdez, and to whoever built this lovely new climate-controlled studio. It's, uh, it's yeah, wonderful. Yeah, it has stayed cool. It's awesome. Yeah. It's great. Awesome. And you can listen to Ezra's other shows if you really want. <laughs>